words on water. of the Water Environment Federation, I'd like to invite you and I welcome you to today's webinar on wastewater utility management during Omicron. I'm Anna Marotra, Director of our Wastewater Surveillance Program here at WEF, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by two leading experts on public health and wastewater who will provide an overview of today's topic, but also answer your questions. Before I, um, before I introduce our um, speakers, I wanted to go ahead and cover three housekeeping items. The first is that this webinar is being recorded and that's just so we can put the webinar up on WEF's YouTube channel after we wrap up here today. Um, the second relates to the fact that I said, yes, our speakers want to answer your questions. So if you have a question now or at any point during the webinar, go ahead and type that question into the chat. And the third relates to, um, you know, if you're curious about learning more about what WEF is doing with wastewater surveillance, and you want to perhaps join the utilities community of practice that is designed to support utilities in their participation in the National Wastewater Surveillance System, then I'd encourage you to head on over to nwbe.org to learn more information. All right, I'll go ahead and introduce our two speakers for today. Dr. Amy Kirby is the National Wastewater Surveillance System Lead in the Waterborne Disease Prevention Branch at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. She brings nearly 20 years of experience in infectious disease research and molecular microbiology to the task of building the first national wastewater-based public health surveillance system in the U.S. Dr. Kirby is also on the faculty at Emory's Rollins School of Public Health as an adjunct assistant professor. She earned a PhD in microbiology and an MPH in epidemiology. Dr. Sanderson is WEF's chief medical officer as well as a practicing gastroenterologist with Northern Light Health and an adjunct associate professor at Howard University. As CMO, he guides WEF in providing reliable medical information to wastewater utility managers and workers. Previously, he served as a medical officer at the US Department of Health and Human Services, a fellow at Harvard Medical School, and chief of the division of gastroenterology at Howard University Hospital. In addition to an MD, Dr. Sanderson also earned an MPH in health policy and management. So we're gonna start out today hearing from Dr. Sanderson, who's gonna talk about some of the challenges that you as a utility manager might be facing during Omicron. Over to you, Dr. Sanderson. All right, well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thank you, Anna, for that introduction. Uh, and I'm definitely honored to be uh, sharing this forum uh, with uh, my colleague, uh, Amy, as well. 
um, I'm going to share my screen. I have just a few slides uh, to hopefully answer some of your questions um, before we get to the Q&A portion. So as Anna mentioned, uh, we really wanna focus on what are the impl implications of Omicron. Um, you know, as you know, Omicron came on, uh, you know, very quickly uh, at the end of November, it was first discovered in Botswana um, and in South Africa. Um, the World Health Organization classified the Omicron uh, variant as a variant of concern uh, right after uh, Thanksgiving, November 26th. Um, and then the United States followed shortly after that. By December 1st, we had recorded our first identified case in the United States. Now, if you look at this slide, it's a little bit busy, but focus on the color, okay? So if you look um, at the beginning of December, this is December 4th, 2021, almost all the cases in the United States were Delta. And over the period of a month, we have seen that this uh, variant Omicron has pretty much taken over, whereas 95% of the cases uh, that we identify uh, currently in the United States are Omicron. Why is that? Why was it so easy for Omicron to take over uh, from Delta? Uh, well, that's because it has a, multi, a, a number of new uh, mutations. So the um, uh, virus, as it continues to replicate, um, has to have some changes uh, within its, uh, within its uh, genetic structure. And so these spike proteins, which are what our uh, vaccines recognize, um, these spike proteins look different um, than they did on previous uh, alpha, uh, delta, and uh, other variants. Um, there's also a receptor binding domain, um, and that's um, afforded 10 additional mutations. So this looks a lot different um, than what Delta looked like. And because of that, it's easier for this particular variant to evade uh, our immune system response. Um, what are some of the changes? Uh, as I said, it spreads very rapidly. Uh, the early data shows that it's um, between 2.7 and 3.7 times more infectious than Delta. And we're talking about individuals who have been both vaccinated and boosted. That's um, three times the, the rate of infection. Um, it infects the upper respiratory system. And so that's mostly your nose, your nasal passages, uh, the back of your throat, which we call the pharynx. Um, and that's important because the previous uh, variations um, were lower down in your um, respiratory system in the lungs. And that's why we saw a lot more people um, with more severe disease. So um, data looking at um, more than 575,000 patients um, who had their first cases of uh, COVID within this uh, last month or so, um, we have noticed their lower emergency room visits, hospitalizations, ICU admissions, as well as people on mechanical ventilators. Um, however, um, don't be fooled that just because it's less severe than Delta, that it's not deadly. Um, Omicron is still deadly, um, and especially for uh, those in the population who are not vaccinated. Another very important um, caveat to Omicron is that um, some of the people who are, are unvaccinated um, 
were relying upon uh, monoclonal antibody therapy, which worked relatively well in patients who had Delta. Um, however, uh, two of the three types of monoclonal antibodies that we have um, are ineffective for Omicron. And so if you are inf infected and you try one of these uh, antibodies, it is much less likely to work for you. So what can we as the uh, wastewater uh, sector do about it? Um, the uh, water effective utility management says that there are multiple different attributes that a um, highly uh, functioning utility system has. And one of the most important as it relates to Omicron is operational resiliency. And so uh, the power that we have is, is in our people. And so we have to protect um, the workers. How can we protect them? Uh, we have to continue to enforce social distancing. So if there is a job that has a team, we have to figure out what is the minimum number of people to do that job safely and then staff it that way. Uh, try to keep people away from each other as much as possible. Um, we could also consider, depending on what uh, state you're in, uh, in your uh, local um, uh, health department uh, recommendations, shortening the isolation time. As you know, right after Christmas, the CDC recommended that those who uh, contracted Omicron but were asymptomatic after five days could um, come out of isolation versus the 10 days uh, that we had uh, previously been um, advised. Um, try to use higher quality masks and you may end up having to supply those for some workers because these uh, are at an additional cost to what a regular surgical mask would be. So your N95s, your KN95s, which provides uh, superior protection. Um, supplying home test kits. Uh, you can talk to your uh, local um, public health department uh, to see whether or not, you know, at the utility, you can have kits available for workers. Um, these are becoming more and more difficult um, to obtain because of the uh, huge spike in cases that we're seeing around the country. And then, um, like a broken record over and over again, the most important thing you can do is encourage and or mandate vaccination for workers. Um, you know, whatever it is, if you're gonna reward teams that have high vaccination rates, um, some utilities can actually host the, uh, vaccination clinics on site to make it as easy as possible uh, for workers and their families to get uh, vaccinated. But the only way to really protect um, against these uh, variants of concern is still with vaccination. So if you look at this graph here, you can see uh, the difference between the surge from Delta um, and the surge from Omicron. The cases are uh, phenomenally high. Um, as we know, the deaths and hospitalizations are less in Omicron, which is good, but because the cases are so high, we do expect that the number of deaths and hospitalizations are still going to increase, that there is a lag time that we see with deaths um, and our um, you know, hospital systems are, are being stressed as it is. Um, one of the systems, which is a big one in uh, Illinois and in Wisconsin, uh, Aurora uh, Health, uh, showed some data on their own patients that said that 93% of their hospitalized patients were unvaccinated, 94% of their ICU patients were unvaccinated, and 98% of the patients that are on ventilators are unvaccinated. So you don't need a math degree uh, to figure out uh, why it's so important uh, for individuals to get vaccinated. Thank you.
Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Sanderson, for that super useful information. Again, just a reminder, folks, put your questions in the chat. You can send them as a direct message to me or you can send them to everyone. And we'll make sure that Dr. Sanderson gets to them in the Q&A portion. So now I'd like to turn it over to Dr. Kirby to talk about variant tracking in wastewater. Hi, good afternoon. So I am going to uh, change gears a little bit and talk about wastewater surveillance. Um, a little brief overview of our national wastewater surveillance system, which we call NEWS. Um, and then I'll talk specifically about how we're using wastewater testing to track variants um, and some of the things that we need to think about when we're using that data. So just a bit of history, uh, the National Wastewater Surveillance System was established by CDC in 2020, uh, September of 2020. And the goal was really to provide community level data uh, to track COVID-19 infections. Uh, and there are four big advantages to wastewater surveillance. First, it provides information on asymptomatic infections as well as symptomatic infections. And importantly these days, it also provides information on unreported cases. So as we see more and more people using rapid tests and home testing, um, those aren't reported to our health departments. Um, so we don't know through the clinical testing system about those positive tests, um, but those people will still be shedding virus uh, in their stool and we can detect those cases through wastewater surveillance. Uh, second, it is independent of healthcare seeking access. So it doesn't matter if uh, an infected person goes to the doctor or gets tested or has access to testing. Um, again, we can still detect those cases through wastewater surveillance, which makes it uh, quite a powerful tool. Third, it's efficient. So one sample at a wastewater treatment plant can represent hundreds, thousands, even millions of people in our largest systems. And finally, it's fast. Um, from the time the toilet is flushed until the time we have data in hand is about five to seven days. Um, and that means we have a lead time over clinical surveillance of a week to two weeks, um, depending on uh, where we are in the pandemic. So it is an early indicator uh, of presence and trends and in infections in the community. Um, the new system has grown very rapidly since its inception. So right now we have 43 uh, public health jurisdictions, that's 37 states, four major cities and two territories uh, that are funded by CDC uh, through our epidemiology and laboratory capacity cooperative agreement um, to conduct wastewater surveillance activities in their communities. In addition to that um, expansion through our ELC funded partners, um, we have also funded a contract with Lumen Ultra to provide rapid expansion of wastewater testing capacity nationwide. Um, this contract was funded in December of last year, um, so it's still in the ramp up phase, but we expect to uh, be servicing 500 new sites um, through that uh, contract um, very soon. Uh, and we have seen uh, this data really be used very widely by our health department partners. Um, so they're using it to make decisions about resource allocations, um, looking at how different communities in their uh, jurisdictions are performing. So where are you going to send additional hospital capacity? Where are they going to cite um, mobile testing units? Um, and importantly, one of the things that they say to us over and over is that they value wastewater surveillance because it increases their confidence that they really know what's going on in their communities in this very dynamic and fast moving pandemic 
um, where conditions change quickly. Um, and wastewater surveillance gives them uh, that extra confidence that they really understand what's going on. So that's sort of the overall of wastewater surveillance for SARS-CoV-2. And what we now see coming onto the uh, stage, if you will, is the ability to track variants through wastewater. Um, this, these methods have been in development really since you know, mid-2020, um, and we've seen them come into use over the past year. Um, but really, it wasn't until the emergence of Omicron that we've really seen these variant tracking methods work in practice to really show that we can track the emergence of a new variant of concern in communities in the U.S. through wastewater surveillance. Um, you may have seen that multiple states have reported detections um, of Omicron-associated mutations through wastewater. Um, and again, showing this uh, early warning system capacity for wastewater surveillance. In many of those communities, the detection in wastewater was prior to any detection um, in clinical cases. So it is serving as that first warning um, that Omicron is present in those communities. Now, what I really want to talk about today is get into some of the details of how variant tracking in wastewater works, um, because it does have some differences from overall SARS-CoV-2 testing um, that are important to understand when you're interpreting variant data from wastewater um, and why we may um, frame those results in certain ways. So it's important, as Dr. Sanderson said, to recognize that viruses like SARS-CoV-2 um, are always mutating. So we see you know, small mutations in viruses um, from nearly every case that's tested. And, and most of them are inconsequential. Um, we can use them to track the epidemic. Um, so viruses that are more closely related are more likely to be part of the same transmission chain, um, but it doesn't really have a big impact on the disease itself. However, there are some mutations and importantly, groups of mutations together that can change the disease itself. Um, so they can make uh, the virus more transmissible or more contagious. Uh, they can impact the way uh, vaccines or treatments uh, can work uh, for that particular variant. Um, and they may impact the severity of the disease. And we're seeing actually all of those impacts um, with Omicron relative to other variants. And in those cases, we will designate those uh, variants as variants of concern. So indicating that those mutations really have um, effects that we want to be able to track. So it's important to recognize that each of those variants of concern is not defined by a single mutation. They're defined by a group of mutations and we call these variant defining mutations. So Delta has 17 variant defining mutations that set it apart from all of the other variants that we've seen. Omicron is very different. It has over 30 variant defining mutations. It's significantly different from uh, the Delta variant that we saw um, or we see it replacing now. And so to know that you have one of those variants, Omicron for example, you really need to be able to see all 30 of those mutations and know that they're present on the same genome. And that is a bar that unfortunately wastewater surveillance just can't meet. So what that means is that wastewater surveillance will never be confirmatory for a specific variant. However, we can provide evidence that variants are present. And I think it's worthwhile uh, looking at 
how these different methods that we use to detect variants work um, to explain that a bit more. So let me pull up um, my slide. Okay, what are you guys seeing? Are you seeing my slide? Yep, you're good. Oh, good, okay. So these are the three main uh, methods that are in use for wastewater surveillance for SARS-CoV-2. So in green, I'm showing you the basic SARS-CoV-2 testing that we've been doing just to look at total infection in a community. So we refer to this as quantitative SARS-CoV-2 testing. It's using polymerase chain reaction, so PCR, either quantitative qPCR or digital droplet PCR. Um, and they're measuring uh, a gene or genes present in the virus. Um, you get a concentration, so how much of that gene is present uh, in wastewater. So you see that reported as copies of the gene per mil of wastewater or copies per gram if you're measuring solids. And this gives us a measure of total SARS-CoV-2 infection in the community, right? So we're looking at all of the virus that's present um, in the wastewater. And what we have found is that this is a very sensitive approach. We can detect very low levels of the virus, and it's also very specific. So when we get a positive result for SARS-CoV-2, we have very, very, very high confidence that the virus is in fact there. Um, we have not seen uh, false positives with any level of um, consistency. So that is not something that we're concerned about. So these results are very solid. We know that concentrations correlate with, constant, with um, uh, infection levels in the community. And so this is working quite well. Shown in red are the two methods that are being used for variant tracking in wastewater. And there's mutation-specific PCR and sequencing, and it's important to know how they're different from total SARS-CoV-2 and how they're different from each other. So let's start with mutation-specific PCR. So this is again using PCR, but in this case, it's a PCR that can discriminate between that wild-type initial virus, in this case, the Wuhan virus, um, isolated in 2019, and a specific mutation in the variant that you're interested in. So you will have Delta-specific PCRs, Omicron-specific PCRs, alpha-specific PCRs. Um, and so you're always having to make new PCRs to keep up with the variant that you're interested in. Um, this is also quantitative because it's PCR. So you can see you know, your Omicron mutation is increasing um, in concentration in a community or decreasing. Um, it is, again, an indicator of that variant being present in the community. Um, because it's PCR, it's very sensitive, so we expect it to be able to be a very early indicator, but importantly, not confirmatory, because you're only detecting one mutation or maybe a handful of mutations. There's a few that can detect like two or three mutations at a time because they're very close together, um, but generally these mutation-specific PCRs are detecting one mutation. So remember, Omicron has at least 30 that define it, and we're detecting one. Um, so you can see why that's not a confirmatory approach. Sequencing, on the other hand, um, is very different. So we use a method called, what most people are using is a method called tiled amplicon uh, next-gen sequencing. So basically you say, you use PCR to amplify the SARS-CoV genome and then use a method of sequencing that just sequences all of it, um, which is great. Um, it detects uh, mutations and groups of mutations. So because we're um, sequencing the whole genome, 
you can detect all of the mutations associated with a variant, which is great. It gives you more confidence that you're seeing uh, really that variant. Um, and so that means it has broader applicability. You don't need to know what variant you're looking for before you do sequencing um, because you're gonna sequence it all regardless. Um, however, sequencing in general is a lot less sensitive than PCR. So the concentration of that variant or the prevalence of that variant in your community needs to be much higher before you'll see it by sequencing. So this is less likely to be that really early indicator that we see with PCR. And again, this method is not confirmatory. Although it's detecting all of the mutations or can detect all of the mutations associated with a variant, because of the way this method works um, and because the virus is already decaying in wastewater and the genome is breaking up, we can't confirm that all of those mutations are in fact present on the same genome and what we're and not what we're seeing maybe you know several different variants that together look like Omicron. Um, so importantly, neither one of these methods, again, are confirmatory for any particular variant, but they do give us strong evidence that variants are present. So I'm gonna stop sharing for a minute. Um, so how do we use this data? If it's not confirmatory, how do we know? Um, and what we need to be thinking about is interpreting these results in the context of the larger pandemic. So what's going on in your community? What's going on in the region? What's going on globally that might help us make sense of this data and say, this is more likely to be true or less likely to be true. So in the case of these Omicron data that we saw coming out in late November and early December, the surrounding context is that we knew we had this new variant emerging globally and that it was highly transmissible and we expected it to show up in the US any day. Um, and so it wasn't surprising to see evidence of Omicron showing up in wastewater in the US. We knew that the detections were rare, they were sporadic, and they were at very low concentrations initially, which is what you would expect for a new variant coming into the US. If we all of a sudden saw you know, only Omicron in a sample, that would be um, unexpected and something that would make you question that result. Um, we've also seen over time in these communities that the detections of Omicron have become more frequent and the concentrations have gone up, which is again, what we expect for the emergence of a new variant of concern. So that's giving us increased confidence that these detections are correct. Um, and so with all of that together, um, these early detections of Omicron and wastewater are very strong evidence um, that the Omicron variant was present in those communities at the time that those samples were collected. And again, this shows that wastewater surveillance is functioning as that early warning system, both for overall SARS-CoV-2 and for variants like Omicron. Um, and so this will be a really important tool as we continue to monitor the emergence of Omicron. So the expectation is that it will um, completely sweep through and replace Delta um, as the prevalent variant. And we can track that and follow it in wastewater. And of course, wastewater surveillance will be there um, as we continue to monitor for the emergence of future variants. With that, I will stop um, and turn it over to Anna for any questions. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Kirby. I'm going to go ahead and turn my um, video back on and Dr. Sanderson is back on as well. Um, and thank you to all of you for your chat, your questions versus direct message. That's how you all sent them to me, which is great. 
just a reminder to keep asking those questions and also that this um, recording of this webinar will be available on WEF's YouTube channel in the next day or so. So, Dr. Sanderson, let me start with you with a clinical question. You mentioned that monoclonal antibodies are not as effective for Omicron. Um, can you define, for those of us who aren't familiar with that therapy, what exactly that's all about? Yeah. So um, in response to uh, a pathogen, whatever, whatever it is, your body is going to produce antibodies, right? And so for um, COVID specifically, um, they are antibodies which are produced, which react to the um, proteins which are on the surface which we call spike proteins, the surface of the, um, the virus. Um, as I said before, um, in some patients who um, had not been vaccinated, who um, contracted COVID, whether it be Delta or uh, one of the original uh, strains or variants, um, one of the therapies that worked relatively well was giving monoclonal is all the same clone, all the same type of antibody giving an infusion of this to uh, patients to try to help their immune system uh, get rid of the virus or decrease the amount of virus. Because Omicron has so many different mutations, uh, as Dr. Kirby mentioned, more than 30 different mutations of that specific protein, then um, giving that specific treatment has been less effective for patients with Omicron. And as I showed you in the slides, you know, within a month, um, Omicron has taken over 95% of cases of COVID in this country. So if you come down with COVID now, the likelihood is that it is Omicron and not Delta. And therefore, um, treating you with one of these is, is, you know, is probably a waste of time. And okay, research. great. Thank you for that explanation. All right, one for you, Dr. Kirby. You mentioned that for each new variant, for each new uh, mutation, that you need to make a new PCR for. Um, that how can you talk to us through kind of that process? How long does that take from when you first identify the variant with specific mutations until you can be looking for it in wastewater? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, so unfortunately, the answer is it depends. Um, if everything goes well, um, you can have a new PCR designed and up and running within a week. Um, it really depends on the nature of the mutations and how different they are from the other, um, other sequences that are out there in that region, how well the PCR can discriminate. Sometimes they work great right off the bat and we can get a good PCR out within a week. Other times it takes some tweaking to get a PCR that's sufficiently capable of distinguishing the mutation from the original. Um, however, that said, um, at least for the case of Omicron, sometimes you can recycle a previous PCR, and we saw that happen um, recently. So Omicron shares a deletion mutation with the alpha variant. So way back at the beginning of 2021, we had alpha. Um, alpha no longer circulates with any kind of um, reasonable or consistent prevalence in the U.S. And so uh, several locations were able to quickly recycle and get uh, running again their alpha-specific 
uh, PCR, and it was detecting the same mutation that's present in Omicron. Um, and so in that case, they were able to get a PCR up and running very quickly. Um, but that one, of course, had the caveat of if there was some lingering alpha circulation, um, it could detect that as well. And so most of those groups have um, either replaced it with an Omicron-specific PCR or are working towards that. Great. That um, makes a lot of sense. And yeah, alpha seems like a very long time ago. Um, all right, Dr. Sanderson, back to you. Can you talk to us about sort of um, what we know now about how um, transmissible wastewater is in terms of a source of COVID? How can you catch COVID from wastewater? And does it depend on the variant? Do we know anything about that? Right. Uh, so one of the things that uh, we determined early on was that in wastewater, you can detect genetic material, right? So the RNA, uh, which is you know part of the building blocks for uh, COVID, uh, but you could not detect uh, any uh, kind of infectious virus. So you can actually um, detect through the PCR techniques, the pieces, the genetic information, but not anything that's going to get uh, an individual sick. Um, there's been ongoing study and research on this. And so we still recommend that, um, that uh, wastewater treatment workers use all preventative measures, their uh, PPE. Um, but at this point, we have not determined that um, there's any uh, infectivity in wastewater. Okay, that, that's great news. Um, all right, Dr. Kirby, another one for you. Um, how you mentioned that the gene copies per liter or per gram of solids can tell you something about how many people are infected with COVID. Is there an equation for that? Um, can you get an exact number? <laughs> I wish that was true. Um, there is not an equation for that. So there are models that people have developed that will allow you to take those wastewater concentrations and estimate community prevalence, right? What percentage of people are infected? Um, the problem with those models is that we don't have all of the data that we need to what we call parameterize the model. So flesh out all of the pieces. And so what you end up with is an estimate that's very uncertain um, and can span several logs. So somewhere between 10% and you know 1000% may be infected, which is not even possible. Um, but those are the sorts of numbers that you get back um, from these models. Um, we are hoping that uh, they will continue to converge and get better. Um, and we'll be able to uh, make that uh, conversion sometime in the future. But for right now, it's just not something we can do. Um, we also see that those concentrations aren't directly comparable from system to system um, because they're um, influenced by the size of the community, by the way the, the wastewater system is built and operated. Um, and so you really want to be sure that um, the numbers that you're comparing between systems are, in fact, comparable. Um, and so uh, the way we do our analysis in the new system, um, we think makes those the most comparable they can be. Um, and one of the best ways to do that is by looking at um, um, the concentrations relative to that site. Um, so we look at that as a percentile. So is the number that you're seeing today in the highest 20% of results for that um, site or is it in the lowest 20% or somewhere in between? Um, and those percentiles really are comparable um, across jurisdictions. Okay, that makes sense. All right, back to you, Dr. Anderson, Sanderson. Um, 
when you show some case data and hospitalization data, and what I've, I've been reading and hearing kind of anecdotally is that there are, um, um, that many of the hospitalization data might actually be what are called incidental COVID cases. So somebody's, you know, admitted to the, the hospital for a pneumonia, non-COVID related, and they're tested for COVID, um, and they show up as a positive and therefore get counted in the hospitalization data. And I think, you know, we're very eager as a, as a globe to see, start seeing that disconnect between cases and hospitalizations and certainly between cases and deaths. Can you speak to kind of the incidental hospitalization COVID data issue? Yeah, um, I, I, I honestly think that that's a red herring. Um, you know, there was a lot of talk when COVID first started about the increase in deaths. Right. And there was a question about why um, we were seeing, you know, such a, a large increase in the number of deaths. Um, and really what that bore out is, you know, there was a lack of testing, which showed that individuals um, who were, you know, passing away actually had COVID. And so now that we know to look for it and we're testing for, yes, we're seeing more cases. But if you think about the, the, cur the curves um, for the graph that I showed you, uh, the case rates that we're seeing now are three times as high as the highest surge we've ever seen. And so what that means is on a practical level, even if there are some patients who have, you know, other disorders that show up with COVID, because we know that there are many patients who have just mild disease, right? But if they're showing up, then they are taking slots away from people who may, you know, have a stroke or have a heart attack or be in a diabetic coma. And so the system is not going to be able to um, absorb all of those extra patients. And therefore, the quality of care for everybody is going to go down because, you know, each individual person has to be, you know, fully evaluated uh, and treated. And so I do think that, um, you know, it's important to be accurate. Um, but um, you know, the, the clinical uh, severity in terms of, you know, what the patient comes into the emergency room or they see their, you know, private uh, physician for um, is really what's going to drive uh, resource utilization. Yeah, that's a really helpful clarification. And I have never thought about it that way before. So, so thank you. Um, Amy, we had one that you touched on a little bit in your um, presentation, um, but maybe you want to expand on it a bit. Um, can sampling for RNA in wastewater become a precursor to detect COVID hotspots as a public health indicator in a given municipality? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think <clears throat> what we... So I, when I talk about wastewater surveillance, it can be helpful in low incidence periods to detect reemergence, right? So are we seeing um, infections come back up in a community or emergence of a new variant, as we've seen for Omicron? But when we know that the infection is prevalent in a community, um, then what wastewater surveillance is really useful for is tracking the trends. Um, and we've seen this um, over time in the uh, over the pandemic where, you know, we know that it's present in a community, but all of a sudden we see um, the levels in a community tracking up very quickly. Um, and then, you know, something is going on and, and that community has a lot of transmission um, and we want to start uh, mobilizing mitigation efforts to head that off. 
Um, and so that's really the utility of it. Um, when we know that uh, the infection is prevalent, how can we still use it? Um, I will also add that even in very, very high uh, incident settings like we're in right now, um, wastewater surveillance still has utility there because unfortunately what we see is some of our other clinical indicators will top out. Um, a good example of that is um, ICU uh, um, occupancy. You can't go any higher than 100% occupancy. Well, not much. I, some of our local ones, unfortunately, are at like 100, 106, 110%. Um, but it's not going to go much higher than that, even if cases continue to go up. Um, so as our clinical indicators begin to flatten out because they've just reached the maximum of where they can be, wastewater surveillance continues um, to be a robust measure. And so it can tell us our cases continuing to go up even when our clinical metrics have maybe flattened out or have we seen the top of the peak and it's beginning to come back down. Um, so I expect that wastewater surveillance will play a really critical role um, for us in understanding um, when we are actually past uh, the peak of uh, Omicron. Yeah, yeah, I think we're all looking forward to that. All right, Dr. Sanderson, another one. You, you, um, um, showed some very important data related to um, the severity of Omicron disease in unvaccinated um, versus vaccinated um, individuals. And really that one of the most important things we can do is get vaccinated and boosted. Can you speak to, you know, some of the concerns that people might have about getting vaccinated and, um, you know, maybe address some of those concerns? Sure. Um... So the, for the you know large majority of patients who uh, go to have vaccination, um, they have you know uh, local reactions. Uh, so they may have just some swelling and soreness uh, in their arm. Uh, they may have some lymph nodes under their arm. Uh, sometimes patients will feel um, you know, symptoms of uh, fever, uh, fatigue. Usually those are less than uh, 24 hours. Um, there are very rare cases um, in which patients can have more severe um, reactions to uh, vaccination. Um, so one of the things uh, that we you know think about and that we you know, talk to patients about is um, getting you know a deep venous thrombosis or blood clot. Um, however, uh, many of the things that you know we do on a daily basis. So in a patient who is um, getting vaccinated, you may have a one in a million chance of that happening uh, versus somebody who's taking, you know, uh, oral birth control may have one in a thousand chance of, of it happening. Um, so it's definitely exponentially higher the risk, you know, for the common things that we do versus uh, getting a vaccination. Uh, my wife actually had a significant reaction to her vaccine. We switched her booster to another type to see if she would have the reaction she did. And it was uncomfortable, um, but it went away after a couple of days. And so the thing that you know we have to remember is that we don't know who's going to go on to have a severe disease with COVID. Um, people talk about death as an outcome. I'm happy that people are only dying at a small percentage, but when we have lots of cases, there are going to be you know uh, thousands, tens of thousands more deaths. Um, but do you want to be on a respirator for two weeks? Um, I don't. Uh, do you want to be in the ICU? I don't. And so even if you're talking about mild disease, some people with mild disease 
end up bedridden for three or four days, um, you know, with severe headaches, fevers up to 103. And so um, while I understand that there are concerns about um, the vaccination, um, you know, it's well tolerated in all groups, elderly patients, uh, pediatric patients. Um, and so I, I think that the trade-off um, between the benefit that you get from the vaccination versus any side effects is, is well worth it. Yeah, that's a great reminder that we all assume risks in our everyday life, but this is just a new risk that we're a little bit less familiar with, but important to put it in context. Um, all right, Dr. Kirby, I think we'll wrap up with you. We have a couple of questions related to the fate of the virus in wastewater treatment and does it get removed during treatment? But sort of the, the bigger question is, can it end up in our drinking water supplies? Um, and is that a concern? Yeah, so um, we have a variety of lines of data suggesting that um, the virus does not survive treatment. So one, as Dr. Sanderson said, um, we really don't have any evidence that infectious virus is present in raw wastewater at any um, consistent and substantial level. Um, so there's some, uh, there's a couple of studies that have shown recovery of infectious virus from stool, um, but they're limited. Um, the studies I have seen looking at infectious uh, virus in wastewater have been negative. Um, they have not been able to recover it, um, which is consistent with all of our epidemiology as well, which suggests that this is really not um, an infection risk. So we know that going into the treatment plant, there's not a lot of infectious virus there, um, but we also know that there is a lot potentially of RNA there. So this signal that we see that we use for wastewater surveillance can be very high. Um, and there have been some groups that have looked at that signal over the course of treatment. And what they have seen is that by the time we get to effluent, there's very little signal left. So even if you're just looking at survival of the RNA itself, again, which is not infectious, um, that is being removed by the treatment processes as well. Um, we also have um, laboratory studies looking at various types of disinfection and treatment um, and their impact on the virus. And the good news is that um, it is not a very hardy virus when you uh, start using disinfectants. So uh, most of our common disinfectants will inactivate this virus very, very quickly. Um, and that's just thinking about wastewater treatment. So when we get to drinking water treatment and we add additional treatment in our drinking water system and disinfection, either with something like ozone um, or chloramines or chlorine, um, that is going to be very, very effective in removing any very low levels that may even enter the drinking water system. Um, and so all of that comes together to say that we really don't expect there to be um, any risk of uh, potential SARS-CoV-2 in drinking water. Wonderful. Well, just a big thank you to you, Dr. Sanderson, and you, Dr. Kirby, for sharing your time and your expertise today. And thank you, everybody, for your excellent questions. Just a reminder that we'll be posting this on WEF's YouTube uh, channel within the next day. And I wish you all a wonderful afternoon. Thank you. Words on water.